We'll have our reading from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Good call. Thank you. Okay. That's it. <laughs> All right, ready? Now that it's the next person's turn, okay? On your mark, get set, go. Five seconds. All right, done. So, 10 seconds to tell the Christmas story. Did anyone find it difficult to tell the Christmas story in 10 seconds? All right, well... What did you include? Just shout some things out. What did you include? What? God did his thing. All right. What? Yeah. Okay. So, so you had you had Mary, the virgin, getting pregnant. You have shepherds, gifts, manger. God comes to save his people in a lowest form. All right, so you got God saving his people in a low form. Um, yeah. <laughs> Undercover rescue operation, right? <laughs> yes, yes, all of those things. So, you know, you, I, I noticed that none of, none of your Christmas stories included um, a snake or, or head stomping a snake, 
Um, but this was the first Christmas story. I mean, this was the very first Christmas. Genesis 3 was the first Christmas. You, you even had a tree decorated. I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, plastic or a little metal uh, balls hanging on it. It was, it was fruit, right? But, but it was beautiful. It was, it was pleasing to look at, Scripture says. And instead of, of, there were gifts involved, instead of these gifts that would make your friends jealous or, you know, that you'd show off to the whole block, these were gifts that would make you like God and simultaneously destroy the world. They're... Um, the first telling of the Christmas story was different probably than the way that we usually tell the Christmas story. The first time the Christmas story was told, it was not good news. It was not good news um, because the first audience wasn't to a church crowded with parents or, um, or to Mary. It wasn't an announcement by angels or to shepherds. The very first time the Christmas story was told, it wasn't even to Adam and Eve. It was to a snake. The first Christmas story was actually given to Satan. That should frame how we prepare for Christmas this season. That should frame our Advent. It should frame how we await Christ's return. We make it about all of these, you know, trappings and, and feelings, and we set this, this Christmas environment, this whole seasonal thing. But first and foremost, Christ was God's response to sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so there's no lighthearted pageant. There's, you know kids with runny noses and, you know, speaking with wisps and, you know, all, like all these cute little things that like we, we love about Christmas programs. This is just, this is two seconds of terrifying judgment. He is coming to destroy you, God tells this snake. God hates sin. He hates those who would tempt his beloved children to sin. This is horror. This is a horror story for this snake. And yet at the same time, you have these two onlookers saying, you know, this will prove devastating for him. But for them, this is great news. This is a treasured hope that would echo through generations, it would move from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Moses to the prophets over thousands of years until Christ was born. Now, the thing is, the further removed you get from a specific event, the more, um, the more like a fable it becomes, the less realistic it becomes. It's more like a cautionary tale. I mean, so it's been... It's been 17 years since 9-11. Okay, for those who are actually old enough to remember that event, you know that it's discussed in a very different way now than it was the day after it happened, right? The further removed we get from an event, it becomes more like a cautionary tale. It becomes less and less real, especially for those who weren't there for it. 
And the same thing happens with this story, with Genesis 3. The same thing happens because the further removed you get, the more like a story it becomes and the more difficult it becomes to retain hope. Especially here, it becomes more and more difficult to retain hope in this restoration. So, you know, we, look at this. I told the story of Genesis 3 from this Bible. This is one of the best children's Bibles that I've ever read. I'm, but it's even, it even has storybook in the title, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is very common for kids' Bibles. They are magnificent tools to use, right? They make the Bible accessible to children. It teaches them the story of salvation and who Jesus is. But it is a cartoon. It's a cartoon. It's lore. It is it becomes less and less real. Something gets lost if we keep it in this kind of realm. And same with the, with the Christmas programs and pageants. It makes the story accessible to kids and to people who might not be so into, you know, the whole sin and judgment thing, right? So we can focus on angels and animals. And even this, is the, is the, is the thing in the manger, is, that, is it real or is it a doll? You know, what's, what, whose kid is messing up? That's so cute. You know, we can make it about everything except what it's actually about. This is our heritage. This is our history. The first Christmas retunes that focus. Jesus is God's immediate in demonstrative response to sin. That's why he came. He was born to die and then to rise and then to reign. This is the story of Christmas, which makes a huge shift in the world's trajectory um, leading up to and after Christ because, you know, we were kind of going down in flames. But uh, Paul writes in Colossians, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, if our existence, if our fabric of being was an ocean, then Christ is the water, okay? He is in everything and is everything. And if death was the status quo, if death is just keeping all things stable, then Christ coming into the world is like a boulder dropped from 30,000 feet. I mean, we're talking tidal waves that ripple throughout eternity in every direction okay this goes all the way back to adam and eve this just it vindicates the faith that 
was spoken into being for thousands of years. It vindicates those who would hope and hope and hope until he arrived. It would drive our faith for thousands of years and even beyond us to next generations until he returns. The coming of Christ was an explosive reality in existence. Even until the very last Christmas in Scripture. The last Christmas in Scripture is us celebrating the physical presence of God with us forever. There's even another tree. Another, there's even gifts. Gifts of healing, it says. And we are the recipients of eternal joy. John, John writes in his revelation, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, the new Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. This is still going on. This restoration, this mission of God is still happening. It is in the works even as we speak. Sin is being defeated for us. Sin is being defeated through us. And this story continues to just ripple and ripple. And tidal wave upon tidal wave comes from the birth and death and resurrection of Christ to everyone who hears this story. So our mission as we propel this story forward our mission is to keep Christ in Christmas. Has anyone ever heard this? Has anyone ever heard this, this story? Keep Christ in Christmas. Okay, this is a slogan that's traced more or less to the 1920s. And it actually um, was uh, the earliest that I could find it being started was by the, the Walther League, which is essentially the National Lutheran Youth Group at that time. Um, but there, it was an appeal... Uh, against materialism and Christmas. So, ironically, we combat materialism in Christmas by purchasing bumper stickers and t-shirts with this slogan on them, right? This is how we keep Christ in Christmas. Now, let me, whose job is it to keep Christ in Christmas? Who, Who is this to? When you, when you drive around with, and I'm not, I'm not trying to slam anybody who has a bumper sticker that says, keep Christ in Christmas. It's a worthy task. It is our, it is our task. But who is it to? Who is this instruction for? Is it for store owners to, to keep the materialism out of Christmas? Is it to the government to stop secularizing the holiday? I mean, who is this command for? You don't keep Christ in Christmas by replacing all the little Christmas tree icons with little mangers instead, right? It's it's not just another branch of marketing. Christ, the preeminent Christ who who created all things and for whom all things were created, was born to defeat death. He was born to forgive sins, to kill death by his own death, to give us life with his own life. 
What does it mean to keep Christ in Christmas? How do we even go about doing that? To keep Christ in Christmas is to wage his war against sin. Now, how do you do that? By blasting secularists and commanding them to be Christian and demanding that they keep Christ in Christmas for crying out loud? No. Christ waged war against sin with grace, with love, with sacrifice. You and I are the keepers of Christmas. The birth of Christ, the news of the birth of Christ. Don't give that over to anyone. It is an honor and a privilege to carry this message, to carry this ministry. And, but we got to know how to do that. God shows us how to respond to sin. Remember, he sent Christ as a response to sin. That's what that promise was for in that first Christmas. It was a response to sin. So how does God respond to sin? In Genesis 3, what, what, what do we get about God from that story? How does he respond to sin? First, with immediacy. He doesn't wait. He doesn't... He doesn't kind of let it fester for Adam and Eve. He doesn't just let them stew in it and wish the best for them and hope everything turns out, hope they give him a chance to fix it for themselves. He immediately responds to them. He immediately comes down to join them. Second, with honesty. In other words, God never says, well, that's okay. It's not that bad. We'll get past this. He is true about what they have done. And he guides them to acknowledge what they have done. So when we're responding to sin, we have to be quick and don't just say, well, you know, how do we go about this? What if I hurt their feelings? What are they? Just, you know, we, we act immediately and with honesty. To, to let someone sit and stew in, in devastating consequences and actions is more of a disservice to them than not bringing it up. Believe me, okay? So, so first we respond with immediacy, then with honesty, but also with hope. Because the first thing God did when they broke the world, the first thing he did was issue a promise of hope. He didn't talk to Adam first and then to Eve and say, you know, you guys are in huge trouble. Uh, you got nothing but pain in store for you. No, he talked to the snake first. And he said, you're done. You're done. The first promise he made was hope for Adam and Eve. Her offspring, child, singular, not offsprings, Paul says, not, 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 a, not a race, not, not a group of people, offspring, one will come and destroy you. So as we are immediately responding to sin and we are honest about sin, we're not just like, you know, blowing whistles in this Christian police force, you know, look at them, look at them. You know, it's not just like this rage. There is hope. There is hope. And it's not a smug little, you know, you better come to Jesus if you want some of this. You know, it, it's not, you know, it's not like that. It's not this smug kind of hope. Um, it, you know, and you better hope for the best kind of thing. It's, it is, it is a promise that is cemented in stone. He will come, he has come, and he will come again. It is as good as done as soon as God speaks it. 
So immediacy, honesty, hope, and lastly, victory, because hope is fulfilled. Hope comes to pass, okay? God's promises are legit, and his grace comes to us. He has forgiven your sins. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven me. He has died on his cross. He has raised from his tomb. He sits on his throne and he gives us this beautiful word that says in the name of Jesus Christ, just as I am forgiven, you are forgiven. That is an incredible, incredible honor. His grace is ours to carry to a hurting world that is in desperate, desperate need of hope. Amen. Let's, um, in honor of uh, this promise of God, in honor of what he is doing in Christ and the hope that we have, the hope that we focus on this week, uh, that is the overturning of sin and death, we will lay that before God. All these sins, all these ways that we perpetuate sin, we perpetuate death, we uh, cut people off, we don't, we, we avoid someone because we know they probably need something, we don't reach out to people when we should, um, we don't trust the promises of God. All of these ways that we perpetuate this brokenness in the world. So we're going to take some time to lay this uh, before God and have a few seconds of silence. Father, for these and all sins that we haven't acknowledged, those that sit in the pits of our heart, the dread that we have about how our week will go, this lack of self-sufficiency, a lack of confidence in you, for all of these things, we echo in Advent prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus and forgive our sins. In your name we pray, amen.